I need five on this side and seven, come on, just come on up, and seven on this side. And could, could a couple of you grab, oh, Charles, thank you for helping. I need four chairs to come up here as well. Okay, five, five on this side, seven on this side. Great, 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 okay. Doesn't matter, you just got to count yourselves off. Oh, you are, you are, you are on this. Okay, 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 good, good. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, we got this side. Scoot over just a little bit further. And then one, two, three, four. I need three more people up here. Okay, one. Okay, okay, great, great. And I need, Patrick, you're coming up. Come, get up here. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, great. I, I think you got recruited again, Charles. I mean, you just like put yourself in as a helper and then you get recruited. So, okay, okay. So I, I need a Jesus, please. Someone, someone willing to be Jesus over here? Okay, okay. <laughs> Patrick, ha, 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 have a seat. Okay. Have a seat. Okay, so, so okay, <laughs> gotta confess your sins real quick and just like get get pure and then you can play Jesus. Okay, good. And then I need. So we've got Jesus right here. Jesus is teaching. He's in a house in a, a city called Capernaum, his hometown, and he's getting. He's in this house and he's teaching. And when you're teaching, you sit. And so, like, the culture was reversed, like, to what we do. So, if if we were doing it this way, then I would be sitting when I would preach a sermon, and you would be standing listening to me. Aren't you so glad we don't do that? Um, So anyway, Diana's very happy. She wouldn't come to church otherwise. Uh, But then I need three, I need three Pharisees to sit here in these seats. Okay. Oh, we have two. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You come to two services, you get roped into two services. Okay. These are our Pharisees. And these Pharisees, also, because they were because many of them were teachers, because they were religious influencers and they were people of importance, they also sat. So they came into the house and they got to sit. Now all the rest of the people had to stand. So th- these are our, this is our crowd right here. So the house was packed with people. The house was filled to the brim with people. People are overflowing through the windows, out into the street. Everybody is trying to get to Jesus because this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is going to take place in Luke chapter 5, beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he is, he, he's been healing people. He's been teaching. People have been hearing about him. And people are coming from all over. And so they're, they're, they hear Jesus is, is healing and they just want to come here and they've, they brought their people who need to be healed. They, they want to teach. They want to hear what's going on. So, so everyone's here for that. Over here, then, we have, we need a paralyzed person. Who wants to be the paralyzed person? That would be, <laughs> thank you, Joe. And, and this paralyzed person has four friends. You are the four friends, okay? So you are, you are the friends. You love Joe. You care about Joe. You're concerned about Joe. You have heard that Jesus is doing these healings, and you're like, we have our friend here. We love our friend. And we want to get our friends to Jesus. Okay, so, so um, yeah, we'll see where this goes. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 5, verse 17. And it goes like this. One day, Jesus was teaching. Go ahead. You, you just go ahead. and you just Yeah. And Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Good job. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Verse 18, some men, well, people, women here, some people, in the the Bible it's men, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. So um, figure that out somehow. Okay? And they tried to take him into the house. 
they, they tried, to, but they couldn't. They can't get into the house. They, they can't get into the house because it's packed, because it's too busy, because the house is so full, they can't even get in through the door. No, it's okay. You can get close. You're trying to get in. You're trying to figure it out. Some men tried to carry this paralyzed man on the mat, tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Verse 19, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. (laughs) And they lowered him down on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. If he wasn't paralyzed now, he might be now. So, before. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, you're, you're not talking, you're thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, up. take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And all, all the friends, you, all your friends can go home praising God too. You're excited. You're having a little party. Everyone was amazed. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe. Be filled with awe. Good. And they said, we have seen remarkable things today. Amen. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Thank you. Thank you. You can leave these chairs. Leave the chairs right there. Leave leave them right there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So today, we are beginning a four-week study on this passage. It's called Through the Roof, How Faith and Community Intersect. And next Sunday, Pastor Kevin will be preaching, and he's going to take, take the good part. I'm leaving the good part of the story, the whole like miraculous healing part to him, and he's going to cover that part. Today, I want to focus on some more minor characters in this passage. Today, I want to spend a little time looking at the Pharisees. Today's message is called Sweet Pharisees, a word for doubters and seekers. So what do you think of when you hear the word Pharisee? Hypocrite. Everybody thinks hypocrite, right? In fact, the Greek word hypocrite, it comes from the Greek word Hippocrates, which means actor on a stage, which is kind of ironic since that's what we just did. We just had the hypocrites up here acting it out. Uh, and now, is, is the, if you call somebody a Pharisee, is that a compliment or an insult? It's an insult, right. And and this kind of came up through culture because the Pharisees were behind the crucifixion. They were the ones who really got this crucifixion thing going of of Jesus and were were the reason that Jesus was killed. But let's talk for a minute about what what else we know about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually not priests. You might not know that, but they weren't priests. There, there were some priests that were Pharisees, but Pharisee was a bigger group of people. It was actually a, a political group. 
that tried to preserve Jewish identity, and they would resist the Roman government, which occupied Israel. And most of the Pharisees were middle-class businessmen. There were a few priests. They were considered religious leaders, but it's almost like a, a religious political group. There were Pharisees that were part of the Sanhedrin, which was the bigger Jewish ruling council that consisted of some priests, the high, is run by the high priest, and there were some Pharisees that were part of that. It was a minority group, but the Pharisees had a lot of popular support among the people. So everybody knew the Pharisees. They had lots of pull and influence on, on, the, on the Jewish people. The Pharisees were known for a couple things. They were known for living a godly life, and they were known for not only accepting scripture, the, which we, would, we know as the Old Testament, but also holding up with that oral tradition of the Jewish people. Now, Jesus would later be very critical of that and say, the oral tradition isn't the scripture. And so, so he would push them on that. But I think that so often we, we quickly jump to Pharisees as the hypocrites, as the bad guys, as the villains in the Jesus story, that we miss the Pharisees that were the good guys. Now, this passage here in Luke chapter 5, this is at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. It's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the Pharisees haven't yet become the bad guys. They're, they're kind of the good guys. In fact, some of the other good guy Pharisees were Nicodemus in Scripture. He's the one who comes to Jesus at night and says, Jesus, teach me what you mean by eternal life. Teach me what it means to be born again. There's also Joseph of Arimathea. He was um, the man who took Jesus off the cross and wrapped him in burial cloths and put him in, in, in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was also a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was trained as a Pharisee. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm, I'm a paragon of of uh, spiritual leadership. And there were lots of early Christians, and Acts 15 talks about some early Christians in the church that, that were Pharisees as well. And so there were some good Pharisees. In fact, early on in Jesus' ministry, there were Pharisees that, that came to Jesus, and they said, hey, Jesus, Herod wants to kill you, so be careful. Now, later on, further on in the gospel story, we would know that Pharisees would be happy if, if, if they knew Herod wanted to do that. But here, they're early on, they're protecting Jesus. And early on, the Pharisees are inviting Jesus into their homes. They're, they're having dinner with him. This happened repeatedly where Jesus was invited into their homes. And uh, multiple passages in Luke and in the other Gospels talk about Pharisees saying, come into my home, let's have dinner, let's talk about things. I want to learn from you. I want to hear what you have to say. So these Pharisees were seekers. And in this phase of their knowledge of Jesus, they have a sweet disposition toward Jesus an openness, a receptivity. They're question askers. They're seekers. And today's passage occurs while the Pharisees still have this sweet spirit of openness. And it's before the Pharisees really turn pharisaical. And so today, as we look at this passage, I think they give us a good picture. They provide a word for us, for those of us who are doubters and seekers, and are on a journey of questioning. A word for doubters and seekers. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says, One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. They're coming from everywhere. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick crowd is busting out of the seams of the house, 
Everybody hears that Jesus is here. Everybody wants a little piece of Jesus. Everybody's bringing all of their sick friends and family members because they just want Jesus to touch them. And the power of the Lord is present and healings are happening. And here we have these seekers. And look where they're located. Right here. In close proximity to the presence of Jesus. These seekers are located at the feet of Jesus. They have a teachable spirit. They're open to immersing themselves into hearing God's word. They're open to being in the presence of Jesus and his followers. So we have four words for doubters and seekers. Number one, sit in the company of Jesus and his people. For those questioning, for those wondering, for those asking the bigger questions, for those trying to figure out who Jesus is, sit in the company of Jesus and his people. <coughs> and I think this causes us to ask, who do we sit with? Who do we spend time with? Whose company are we in? Who are we putting ourselves in the same place that Jesus and his people gather? Who are you keeping company with? Because who you keep company with affects who you become. So they're sitting here. They're giving Jesus time. The Pharisees aren't just standing, kind of looking through the window, keeping their distance. The Pharisees are here. They've put themselves in the presence of Jesus among the company of his followers, and they're, they're close to him, giving proximity to Jesus and to his people. They're not just in the background, not just passers-by. They're paying, we've got to pay attention to our location, our location to Jesus, how close are we to him, and our location to Jesus' people. Are we putting ourselves in the company of other believers? Probably about 10 years ago, I was part of, a, of an, I'm actually still part of it, but I was, I was part of an internet group of people that had been kind of on a learning journey together about some things. It wasn't, it wasn't a Christian group necessarily, but a lot of people in it were Christians. And in the course of of, you, know, you know how you have internet friends and people you kind of just get to know through online learning communities? Well, this was kind of how it was. And in the course of that, there were several people in the group that around the same time were actively walking away from Christianity and actively walking away from belief in Jesus. And at first, I, I kind of tried to dialogue with them a little bit, and then I thought, you know, I've got a whole church of people who are asking questions. I don't really need more of this in my life. I'm not going to be my problem. And, um, and, so, and so I would just kind of read what they had to say. But then after, as time went by, I found that the seeds of doubt that they were sowing were affecting me. And I found that they were causing me to question things that I just didn't feel like I needed to question. I felt a tension of, if I stay here, I could go down a path I don't want to go down. And at that time, I decided, I'm just going to remove myself from this group for a little while. And, and now, now I'm back in it, and it's fine, and it's, it's not a thing. But I felt in my own soul, I felt my vulnerability. I felt my ability to be led in a way I didn't want to go. And so I, I was able to set that boundary because God helped me do that. My point is that the company that we keep, the relationships that we immerse ourselves in, absolutely affect us. And for doubters and seekers, we need to sit in the company of Jesus and his people. The book of Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, 
but a companion of fools suffers harm. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. So it's saying, if you want to be wise, hang out with wise people. If you want to be a fool, hang out with foolish people. If you want to be a person of faith, hang out with people of faith. If you want to be a person of non-faith, hang out with people of non-faith. Because who we spend time with matters. And here the Pharisees, in this position of, of really being open to Jesus, put themselves in a position to sit with Jesus and his people. And it's this community dynamic that is helping to call them and invite them toward faith. Well, then the passage goes on. The story continues. They, they bring in the man. They can't get through the crowd, so they come through the roof, and they put the man before Jesus, and Jesus says to him, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, they're kind of hoping for a healing here, but instead he gets his sins forgiven. And the Pharisees, meanwhile, are sitting here thinking, okay, maybe he's going to do a healing. We've been hearing that Jesus does these healings, so maybe he's going to do a healing. But then Jesus doesn't do the healing. Instead, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, <gasps> and they ask questions. They ask questions that aren't that bad, actually. They say, who does this guy think he is? And they say, who, they mention the word blasphemy. They say, uh, is he speaking blasphemy? That, that's a lack of reverence for God. Is he insulting God? It seems like he's insulting God. It's good, to, it's good to be on guard against people who insult God. That's not a bad thing. And then they ask the question in verse 20, 21, who can forgive sins but God alone? Hey, that's a good question to ask too. Because if other people are saying that they forgive sins, then we got to kind of like examine like where that's coming from and what's going on there. And, and they know that God is the person who determines what is sin and, and what is not. And so, so they just haven't grasped that Jesus is God yet. But they're asking an, a question that's not inappropriate. They're saying, who is this Jesus? They're wondering, do his words line up with scripture? And isn't forgiveness of sins something that only God can do? Like, who is this Jesus? These aren't bad questions. A word for doubters and seekers, number two, is ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. Now, as we're going to see toward the end, toward, toward later on in the gospel, we're going to see that the Pharisees' questions change. They will change from asking, who is Jesus, to, does Jesus agree with my beliefs? Do you hear the difference there? Their questions shift from wrestling with the person of Jesus to leaving that aside and saying, Do, does Jesus agree with my beliefs? Now, those are the wrong questions. That's the wrong question. And I would suggest to you, church, that a lot of times faith crises happen because we're asking the wrong questions. Often we become fixated on the wrong things. We demand a response to God. We say, God, you've got to answer this for me. God, this is the question that I want to know the answer to. God, you have to come, come through for me. And we're unsatisfied in our seeking. And sometimes you'll find out if you're asking the right question, if Jesus answers or if he doesn't answer. Jesus doesn't answer here. Instead, Jesus responds with a counter question. He doesn't answer their question directly. 
He doesn't say, well, let me explain it to you. Instead, he challenges them, and he says, he says, why are you thinking these things? What is easier? And then he goes on to a, a teaching thing. He, he pushes, and he's not afraid to create uncomfortableness. Now, if Jesus were anxious about uncomfortableness, he would say, oh, well, let me explain it to you real quick. But Jesus isn't anxious in the uncomfortableness. He says, you need to be uncomfortable here, and I'm going to let that happen for you. Some of us need to be uncomfortable with what we're thinking. Some of us need to be uncomfortable with our questions and with the things we're holding against Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to let you be uncomfortable there because you're on the wrong track. You need to ask different questions. We must ask the right questions. So Jesus, Jesus knows what they're thinking. Verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking those things in your hearts? Let me just pause because I think this is funny. The Pharisees, so, so Jesus is sitting here and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He's still lying there paralyzed. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are, are thinking, ooh, sins, he's forgiving sin. Mm, mm, not sure what to think about this. But they're, they're not saying anything, they're just being quiet. Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> It's so funny to me. I mean, I wish I could have experienced what it actually felt like in that moment to have Jesus say, why are you thinking this? Verse, verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Jesus knew what they were thinking. One of the translations says, Jesus perceived their thoughts. He felt them. He knew what was going on in their minds. They didn't verbalize it. He just knew their hearts. He perceives the rising of the critiquing spirit. He perceives the, the borderline judgment. He perceives that they are questioning his righteousness and his trustworthiness. He perceives all of their mistrusts and their doubts and their concern. He perceives their inner turmoil. He perceives their inner conflict. He perceives that, you know, that sense of heat that rises up when you get agitated about something and you feel the heat rising inside. He perceives that because they're seeking to be protectors of the truth. And then we have this we have these questioners, we have these doubters. And I think the message for us in this moment is this. Number three, know that you are known. He perceives your doubts. Now, there, there were a lot of things going on here. There is the, the paralyzed man who's lying there thinking, uh, Jesus, you're having a conversation over me, and the, you're talking to the Pharisees. What about me, Jesus? <laughs> We have the friends who, who maybe are thinking, uh, come on, Jesus, forget about the Pharisees. Let's, let's focus on this guy. We have, we have the crowd. Who knows what they're thinking? They're probably thinking all sorts of things. Some of them are probably thinking, hey, let me in. I have got someone who needs to be healed too. Hurry up and get on with it. Let, let me get my person in. But in all of that, Jesus zones out everybody else in that moment, and he zones in 
on the Pharisees, on these seekers and on these doubters. And he says, I perceive your thoughts. Doubters and seekers, you can know that you are known. You are known. Your doubts are known to Jesus. Your heart is known. He knows your inner turmoil. He knows your angst. He knows your uncomfortableness. He knows your heart. He knows the parts of you that are shallow. He knows the parts of you that have good intentions. And he, he loves them. And he wants to connect with them. And he loves you. And he wants to connect with you. Because they matter to him. These seekers, these questioners, they, they matter to Jesus. Uh, he, he might not specifically answer the question that you're asking. And that's, that's his prerogative, church. He doesn't have to answer your questions. You can demand answers all you want, but he's God and you're not, and so he gets to decide what he answers. But maybe you need to hear today that he sees you. He sees you and knows you. His heart is inclined toward you. And he wants more than anything for you to maintain a sweet openness toward him, even in the midst of your doubt and your questions. You are known by Jesus. I love this moment. I just imagine the love in Jesus' eyes. I imagine the longing that he has for their souls, the desire he has for them to believe in him, to repent of their sin, and to say, Jesus, we know you are from God. The story concludes in verse 26. Everyone is amazed and gave praise. They were filled with awe. We have seen remarkable things. Amazed, praised, awe-filled. Even the Pharisees, it says everyone. The Pharisees are praising God. The Pharisees are giving testimony. We saw something pretty great today. The Pharisees are filled with awe. They're saying, God, you are awesome, awesome, awesome. Our God is awesome. This is, a, this is interesting. Because not that much later in Scripture, the, the sweet openness, the sweet-spiritedness of the Pharisees will shift from being amazed to plotting to kill Jesus. But in this moment, they receive the mystery. The fourth word for doubters and seekers, number four, is receive the mystery. Receive it. There's things we don't understand. We don't know how Jesus actually raises this man so that he's no longer paralyzed. We don't know how he makes him able to walk. We don't know how Jesus makes forgiveness of sins happen. We don't, we don't know. And part of putting faith in Jesus is embracing the mystery because if God could be fully grasped, he wouldn't be bigger than us. We keep trying to shrink God to our own size so that we can understand him, so that we can control him. We keep trying to make God in our own image. And God says, that's not how I work. I'm bigger than you. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Part of putting faith in Jesus is embracing mystery. Embracing mystery that his ways are above our ways. 
embracing mystery that miraculous healings can happen at his command. Embracing the mystery of why they don't happen when we want them to. Embracing the mystery that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in every believer. How does that happen? Embracing the mystery that God knows the very number of hairs on your head. And the mystery of why does he want to know that? God, it's embracing the mystery that God is sovereign over the nations of the world. It's the mystery that somehow the blood of Jesus purifies us from sin in some cosmic way that we can only begin to grasp. Faith in Jesus involves faith in someone much bigger than ourselves. It's faith in someone who is God, who is divine, who is not just a human, who is strong. Faith in Jesus is a mystery. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 about this mystery, and he writes this, Colossians 2, verse 2. My purpose is that they, the church, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Okay, who is the mystery of God? Christ. The mystery of God is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And skipping down a few verses to verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul says, I want people to embrace the mystery. In verse 2, I want them to know the mystery of God, which is Christ. And in Christ, he says in verse 3, there's, the, there's all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The answers are in Jesus. And he says, be on guard against the arguments. Be on guard against the social media posts. Be on guard against the news media. Be on guard against what he says are fine-sounding arguments. Be on guard against hollow and deceptive philosophy in verse 8. Hollow and deceptive philosophy. These are philosophies that sound good, they look good, they look appealing, but they are hollow, and they can deceive you if you are not careful. These things versus Christ always come back to Christ, always come back to Christ, always come back to Christ. Verse 9, because in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's mystery. Doubters and seekers, sit in the company of Jesus. Put yourself there. Ask the right questions. Know that you're known. And be willing to receive the mystery of this faith that we call belief in Jesus. Now today's passage, I I told you, happens at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And this is a good moment for the Pharisees. They're they're just hearing about Jesus. And the scripture tells us they came from everywhere. They're flocking to Jesus. They weren't too proud to come from all over the place to hear what this Jesus character had to say. They were humble. They were teachable. They were learning. This is a good moment to the Pharisees while they're still sweet. And although we know there were some who did follow Jesus faithfully, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, we know the direction the rest of them took. We know the Pharisees became the driving force to destroy Jesus and that ultimately led to his 
resurrection, to his, his death and his crucifixion. And there is a shift at some point in the Pharisees, a shift from being sweet with Jesus to being sour. There is a shift in which their honest questions and their doubts soured and ended up planting seeds of bitterness and resentment and lack of faith and pulled them away from Jesus. In fact, let me just hit a few of these passages in Luke. They shift from asking the question of who is Jesus to does Jesus agree with my beliefs? This is a danger that is happening all over today. We're all susceptible to it. So often we think that what we believe is in the Bible, and then we have to examine the Bible to discover it's not. We're in Luke chapter 5 today. Just a few verses later in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, the Pharisees ask this question. They say, why do you eat and drink with sinners, Jesus? So, So here they're shifting from saying, who is Jesus and what's this whole thing about sin, to let's get to the minutia, let's get to some of the rules, let's get to some of the smaller stuff, And Jesus, why do you eat and drink with sinners? Then three verses later, they ask him more questions about more minutiae, more small things. They say, why do you fast and pray the way you do, Jesus? You don't fast and pray like we do, like we have these traditions, and we think that this is clearly the holy way to do it, but you don't do it that way. So again, they're they're leaving the major things behind and focusing on the minor things. Then in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 6, Then their question is, Jesus, why do you observe the Sabbath this way? It's breaking our laws. And Jesus is saying, well, there's there's my law, and then there's the extra stuff you've added on to it. See, they're they're getting caught up in the small things. And Luke chapter 6, verse 7, just a couple verses later, there's a shift here. And it says they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely. Do you hear the shift from this openness toward him to a souring toward him. Before they were saying, hey, look out for Herod, he's coming after you. And now it says they're looking for a reason to accuse him. They're watching him closely, evaluating him, waiting for him to mess up. And just three verses later, Luke 6, 10, Jesus heals somebody. And it says the Pharisees were furious. They were furious and began to discuss what they might do to him. What a change from this healing where this happens and then they're filled with awe and they they praise and they give thanks to God and they glorify God and they say, God, this is amazing to heal somebody else and they have soured by this point. Their roots of bitterness and resentment and unbelief and lack of faith are flourishing and so now instead of praising God, it says they were furious and began to discuss what they might do to him. And then finally, in the next chapter, Luke chapter 7, here we are just two chapters later in the gospel. We read this interesting description. Luke 7, 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. For those of you who know your Bibles well, 
what was the description of John's baptism? It says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. When John came baptizing people to prepare them for Jesus, he was inviting them into a baptism of repentance that just showed, God, wash me clean of my sin. God, forgive me for my sin. Wash me clean. That was what John the Baptist was preaching and preparing people for. And Luke 7.29 is telling us that the tax collectors, the people, they'd been baptized by John. And so because they had repented, they were ready to receive the words of Jesus. But it says in verse 30, the Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. And I wonder, church, how many of us are rejecting God's purpose for ourselves because we have not repented of sin. A teacher of mine once said that often when people question their faith, it's because they did not have a clear moment of repentance in their salvation story. And I think this is a common problem that people like, like me, who I, I grew up in a Christian home and I put my faith in Jesus at a very early age, I hadn't done a lot of bad, bad, bad things by the time I was just a little kid. You know, like that came later. I didn't, most of my, sin, most of my sins happened after I became a Christian. But, but, but for, for many of us, when, when we don't have this understanding of my desperate need for rescue from a God, from a God who cleans me, who can restore me, who can forgive me, who can make me new, who can put in me a new creation, when we miss out on that repentance, so often we miss out on God's purpose for our lives. And I get concerned about our lack of conviction of sin. We think that putting our faith in Jesus is simply just like, like saying, I, I put my faith in a political party because I agree with these ideas. A lot of people would say that about Christianity. I agree with these ideas, so I'm, that makes me a Christian. Jesus came preaching his kingdom and he said, repent. Humble yourself. Recognize you need God. Recognize you need him. And the Pharisees teach us an important lesson. They, they had an opportunity to humble themselves, and a few of them did. They had an opportunity to say, Jesus, you can be my leader. They had an opportunity to say, Jesus, you can define my questions. Jesus, you can be the one in control. I don't have to be the one in control. But most of them hardened their hearts. And there's this quick progression through just two chapters of Scripture where they go from being sweet toward Jesus to being hard-hearted and bitter. Most of them insisted on their own questions being answered. Most of them did not want to sit in Jesus' presence anymore. They didn't want to wait on him anymore. And they didn't want to wrestle with the mystery of Jesus. They had an opportunity, but eventually the opportunity passed. I don't know what your window of opportunity looks like. Only God knows that. But I do know that there is a window of opportunity in which we're invited to have a soft spirit before God. And I think this is true both for people who currently have put their faith in Jesus and for those who haven't yet put their faith in Jesus. There are windows of opportunity in which you are invited to foster a soft heart toward God. And if you miss them, 
Sometimes there's another chance, and sometimes the opportunity passes. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Maybe you're a question asker, a, a seeker. Maybe in this moment, you have an opportunity to go sweet or sour. You've got an opportunity to say, I, I will receive the mystery. I will let you be God and I don't have to be God. I will let you have control. You've got an opportunity to let Jesus ask you the questions that he wants to ask, to probe, to convict you of sin. You have an opportunity to humble yourself and say, I want things to be a certain way, but I'm just going to accept that they're not. And I'm going to choose to be okay with that and follow you, Jesus. Maybe you're saying, I don't need to demand answers to my questions right now. And the invitation that Jesus has for us today is to humble ourselves. To humble ourselves before it's too late. To humble ourselves and foster that sweet spirit with God. Would you please stand where you are and bow your heads? And if you sense, whether you are already a Christian or not yet a Christian, if you sense a vulnerability in yourself toward souring toward God, if you sense a vulnerability in yourself toward becoming hard-hearted, if you sense that seeds of doubt maybe have a little bit more growth in your life than what you wish they did, would you come forward and kneel and humble yourself before God? Confess those things to him. Tell him what it is that you're thinking. Tell him what it is you're bothered by. Ask him what he wants of you. Ask him where you need to sit. Ask him to help you put your questions to the side and let them not be the primary conversation. Thank him that he knows you. Know that you are known. Know that you are loved. He sees you. He perceives you. He perceives your heart and your questions and your wonderings. He perceives who you are and he perceives who he has designed you to be and who he wants you to become. He perceives all of that, even in this mess that you might feel right now. And ask him to help you receive the mystery, to be filled with awe. And Lord God, we ask that you will disrupt the devil's schemes. The enemy would love to kill, steal, and destroy. The enemy, we know from one of the parables that you taught, the enemy would like to take seeds of weeds and scatter those weed seeds in the midst of the good seed. We ask right now, Lord God, that the enemy would be prevented from doing so. We pray that Jesus, you, your Holy Spirit, will breathe on each person here. Breathe a fresh breath of life 
draw them into repentance and confession. Draw them into humility. Lord, lead them into a, a humbling of themselves that perhaps they have never done or have not done in a long time. Your scripture says, repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And we know that new life and refreshment in your spirit only comes as we shed off that sin and shed off that old life. Lord, make us new. Be, may we be transformed in the likeness of your son. We pray for a fresh covering of your spirit. We pray for a fresh new creation today. You know and perceive and love us, Jesus, and you have called us into such goodness. And I pray for your mercy and your favor and your joy to pour out on each of these people. And that just like the paralyzed man, they may find themselves getting up and walking. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.